Father God, thank you that we believe we have a Redeemer who redeems our souls from sin, but also a Redeemer that redeems our pain, redeems the tough things in life. And sometimes we wonder if it is wasted. So, Father, we want to study today uh, a person that you divinely worked in and around his life to teach us how to respond to extreme pain. Uh, so, Father, in the heaviness of this sermon, I pray that you would uh, uh, enlighten our souls and lighten our load and help us to see clearly that you are in the midst of it all. Because as you are revealed, as God is revealed, we discover everybody's hope whenever everybody hurts. So teach us about our hope in you. Teach us about our hope in you regardless of whatever we face in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Hey, open your Bibles to the book of Job today. We're going to go to the book of Job. We've been in a series called Everybody Hurts. Today we transition to a series called Everybody's Hope. It's a subtle shift, but we're shifting to some stories. We call them stories of God revealed because everybody's hope in, in reality is not found in answers. Everyone's hope is found in a person. It's not found in more information. It's found in a personal encounter with the God that actually meets us in the midst of our pain. So today, I thought, hey, if we're going to study a series of stories from now through the end of August of various characters in the Old Testament that found God revealed in the midst of their pain, I thought, what better place to start than ultimate pain, and that's the book of Job, all right? We're going to cover 42 chapters in Job in the next 40 minutes. Can you believe that? Say yes. Ah, oh, you're naive, okay. But, but you know, you can pray for me anyway, okay? But we're going to get pretty close to it anyway. But we're going to in, enjoy the whole book. I'm going to put a lot of it up on the screen. I don't usually do that, but I want you to follow with me in Job also. So get your Bibles open, get the outlines out. I'll at least point you to the key statements throughout this book that will help us unfold the story of Job and then the story of God revealed in the midst of it. Okay, so here we go. I like to start with some good theology. You know, Job is heavy. It's full of rich theology. So here's the best commentary I found on Job this past week. Nine home runs in a row. Good grief. What can I do? Okay. Now this is, okay, back up a little bit. So you gotta get the image here now, okay? This is Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown's on the mound. Charlie Brown's pitching. Now you gotta imagine God is the manager. And if God's the manager on the bench, and there's a lot of talent in the bullpen, imagine if you're the pitcher, and the first nine batters hit home runs. Now, and you're wondering, hey God, are you paying attention, right? So Charlie Brown says, nine home runs in a row. Good grief. What can I do? Next slide. Yeah. You know, and then Schroeder comes out. It's great to have a theologian as a catcher. Okay. He says, hey, Schroeder, we're getting slaughtered again, Schroeder. I don't know what to do. Why do we have to suffer like this? Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. What? And then Linus answers. He's quoting from the book of Job, Charlie Brown, seventh verse, fifth chapter. Okay, and actually, the problem of suffering is a very profound one. And then Lucy comes in. Yeah, if a person has bad luck, it's because he's done something wrong. That's what I always say. Good old Lucy. And Schroeder comes back. Well, actually, what that's exactly what Job's friends told him. But I doubt if, and then Lucy pipes in, but what about Job's wife? 
I don't think she gets enough credit. And, of course, then, again, Schroeder thinks theologically. You know, I think a person who never suffers never matures. Suffering is actually very important. Lucy, who wants to suffer? Don't be ridiculous. And then, of course, uh, who is this dude? I forget. Pigpen. Pigpen? Pigpen. Pigpen. That's right. He's the one that has dirt all the time. But pain is a part of life. And dirt, too. I added that. Okay. And then Schroeder says, And a person who speaks only of the patience of Job reveals that he knows very little about the book. Now, the way I see it is, and then Charlie Brown, good grief. I don't have a ball team. I have a theological seminary. (laughs) But the reality is, when you listen to that little cartoon, I just taught you the book of Job. Because in essence, that is the flow of the book. That is the kind of a lot of the big ideas of the book. But yet it never really answers the question as to what was going on in Job's life. Nine home runs in a row. God is watching. And if God has a lot of talent in the bullpen, why in the world is he not calling in the relief? Now, if we're talking cartoons and baseball, it's not a big deal. But what if each of those home runs represents another major loss in your life? What if you had nine major losses? Not one death. Not one bout with cancer. Not one lost baby. Not one lost job. Not one betrayal by a friend. What if you had nine of those in a row and you cried out to God and nothing changed? In fact, God didn't even answer. See, I think in a way, that's the story of Job. What we're going to do is look at it because the reality is we're tempted to begin to think, maybe I should just give up on God. We're beginning to think, you know, is God even paying attention? Or, you know, if God is paying attention, that maybe makes it even worse, because then if he's paying attention, does he not care? And if he's paying attention and he cares, then maybe he's impotent, because why isn't he doing something to fix it? And the reality is, I think that this type of a storyline is one that all of us deal with at one time or another in our lives. If you're not, if you haven't been there yet, you will be. So let's learn from the example of Job. The prologue of the book, I'm going to cover all of it by just giving you the highlights. Chapters 1 and 2 are the prologue. Chapter 1 sets up the story by setting up Job. Read with me in your Bibles. There was a man from the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters were born to him, ten kids. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. And by the way, notice that in this culture that female donkeys are better than male donkeys. Okay, okay, here we go. 500 female donkeys and very, that was a joke. Somehow that missed though, didn't it? Here we go. And very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And not only that, but he was a man of spirituality. Look at verse 8. In verse 8 it says this. Hey, and this is God now talking to Satan, because in the midst of this, Job begins with Satan coming into the presence of God in heaven 
and, uh, and, 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 and God says this to Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. In other words, Job was a man is characterized by three things, godly faith, a great family, and a great fortune. Godly faith, good family, great fortune. Okay, this is the man called Job. And when God says he is the greatest man on the earth from God's perspective, then that's quite a compliment, right? Right. So you're talking about a world-class, literally a gold medal world-class follower of God and uh, who has been tremendously blessed. That was Job. Now, then this challenge thing comes down. And by the way, let me pause for just a minute, time out, and give you a little historical perspective. Job, uh, the events of Job are real. They probably happened a very, very long time ago. And in fact, Job is dated by most scholars to that the events probably are being described at a time at least as old as Abraham and perhaps even pre-Abrahamic. He's at least during the patriarchal period of Abraham and Isaac. And, and why is that? Okay. The reason we know that is several things. Number one, no, uh, uh, there is no mention of Israel anywhere in the book. There is no mention of the Mosaic law anywhere in the book. Um, and, and his wealth is measured, his wealth is measured in animals, not gold and silver. And at this time in history, in the pre-Abrahamic time, it was very common to, uh, to measure a person's wealth by the size of their herds and their livestock. So the fact he had all these female donkeys and, and, you know, all these, all these, all these animals helps us date the book. Now why is that significant? You're talking about a man whose faith in God is based out of having no awareness of Jesus. No awareness of the cross. No awareness of the resurrection. No awareness of any New Testament scripture or Old Testament scripture. None of the prophets. In other words, this is a guy whose faith is placed in his creator God that he has learned of and fallen in love with and chosen to follow without all of that that we have. And we're going to come back to why that's significant toward the end. But just tuck that away. This guy has an incredible faith in God. God challenges Satan and says, hey, Job's my man. And Satan says, hey, does Job fear God for nothing? Verse 9. Look at verse 9. Okay, you know, why does he fear you? Of course he fears you. You know, that many camels and beautiful family and ten kids. I mean, he's got it all, God. You give somebody all those goodies, they're going to worship you. That's easy. So God says, okay, here's the deal, Satan. I'll call you on that. You test him, just don't harm him. In verse 12, God says, you can, you can, says, behold, all that he has is in your power. And God gives, uh, Satan access to take all of that away. He says, just don't hurt Job. Just don't hurt Job. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Verse 12, chapter 1. And then there's a series of tests. And the first round of the tests is in chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. And what we find is, uh, is tragedy up on tragedy. Just a couple of sample verses. Verse 30. Verse 13, chapter 1. Now, on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, so they got a big family gathering, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them away. 
And they also slew your servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone escaped to come tell you. And while he's still speaking, another servant comes in. Fire, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants were consumed also. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he's still speaking, another one also came. The Chaldeans, another one of their enemies, the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, took the camels, slew the servants by the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he's still speaking, another comes and says, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking at their oldest brother's house. And verse 19, behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness. It struck the corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 20, and Job arose and took his, tore his robe and shaved his head, signs of mourning and grief. And he fell on on the ground and he worshipped. Underline that word. His response was grief, but it says he worshipped. And this is what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. And the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the next verse says, and through all of this, Job did not sin, and he did not blame God. How do you even comprehend that kind of pain? But it gets worse. Round two. Round two is chapter two, verses one through ten. The short version is God says, okay. You know, Satan comes and says, okay, but you know, you didn't let me go after Job himself. So God says, chapter two, verse six, the Lord said to Satan, behold, Job is in your hands, only spare his life. So you can work on Job now himself, but just don't kill him. So his health is afflicted. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Now, imagine that. My wife, uh, for example, Becky, uh, has a history of having bouts with shingles and and uh, the ads you see on TV are accurate when they say it's one of the most painful things you can go through. And um, and uh, when I read this, I thought of Becky and her shingles. Um, in fact, she's just on the tail end. She's not contagious, so you can say hi to her this morning. But if you saw her last week, you were at high risk. Uh, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> All of you are like, oh, I'm distraction. Okay, but anyway, no. No, she, she, she wouldn't do that to you. But she has had about a shingles. They're just now clearing up and going away. Uh, but, you know, because she took some very strong antiviral medication that, that, that she's learned to take when they first start, she was able to restrict it to where her shingles were only about a patch about this big, just a small patch. But out of that small patch of shingles, her nerve path all the way around the side of her body was inflamed and painful, so painful she could hardly sleep at night, and uh, and, and she couldn't even touch the skin Uh, in this whole part of her body, and she only had this one little outbreak patch about this big. You know, and now imagine if you had that from the sole of your feet to the crown of your head. That was Job. That was Job. His health was afflicted. And on top of that, his wife comes. Now here's what she says, chapter 2, verse 9, okay? Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity, that is, your trust in God? Curse God and die. That's, you know, that's a loving wife's advice. 
don't know if she wanted to cash in the life insurance or what. I'm not sure. You know, but I mean, you know, I mean, she's in grief because you got to remember she just lost all this stuff that he lost, right? So she just watched their fortune go and their kids get killed and everything else, and she's grieving. She's grieving, and in her grief, she says, "Hey, man, just curse God and let him kill you. You'd be better off." So Job has a wife nagging him for his faith. His wife hassles him. And then look at the response. His faith holds strong in verse 10, 210. Here it is. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Yikes. Probably slept in another bedroom that night. But <laughs> Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. And Job's friends show up, verse 13, chapter 2. And they sat down with him on the ground for seven days, seven nights, no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. So his three best friends just come to be with him. And that's a good thing, by the way. They showed up. And they just sat with him. Sometimes when people are grieving and in pain like this, you don't say a word. Just be there. And say, I'm here to be with you. I don't have answers. I don't have wisdom. I love you, and I'll just be here with you. They show up. They show up. And then the dialogue begins, and from chapters 3 to 41, we have this dialogue, mostly between Job and his friends. And here's the highlights. First, Job begins to let it out. He begins to lament. Chapter 3, verse 3, look at that verse. He says this. He says, I wish I had never been born. He says, let the day perish on which I was born and the night which said, a boy is conceived. He says, man, I wish I'd never been born. And then he says in verse 11, I wish I would have died at birth. If I got to be born, verse 11, why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. And then in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, and if that didn't happen, I wish I could just die now. And he says this in verse 20, why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul? This guy is hurting so bad, he wants to die. So his friends finally speak. Now that Job is speaking, they'll speak. And and, and they speak three times, three different rounds in which they speak, he responds. They speak, he responds. And here's the flow. Chapter 4, verse 8, Eliphaz. By the way, here's some great names. You're looking for the name of a boy. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Okay, um, you know, it's E-B-Z, okay, whatever. I like those. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they show up. Eliphaz says this to him. He says, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. So what's he saying? What's the implication? Talk to me. Okay, Job, (laughs) let's start getting to the root of the problem, man. You are the problem. Why don't you just admit it? We see it all the time. People that sin get their butt kicked. You know, I mean, that's life. So would you just fess up and come out, you know, and let's talk about getting to the root of this thing. Maybe we can get some relief. So they accuse him of being the problem. Job responds. He says two things. Look, I've looked at my heart and my life. I am innocent. I am frustrated. And then he says in verse 15, but I'm not going to stop clinging to my faith. In fact, in verse 15, chapter 13, he says this, Though God slay me, I will hope in him. Period. 
And God's already done everything else except slay him. Okay? He's allowed everything else to happen that could happen to the guy except take his life. And he says, though God slay me, I will hope in him. So his friends come back at him again. Round two. You jump to chapters 15 to 21. Let me give you what I think captures the spirit of it. Probably chapter 20, verse 5, Zophar speaks up. The triumphing of the wicked is short, Job, and the joy of the godless momentary. In other words, Job, it's got to be your fault. Job responds again, same thing. First, I'm innocent. 16, 17, though there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure, he says. He's frustrated. He expresses he's frustrated that God doesn't seem to be explaining what's going on. And and, and this is continuing on. He's innocent. He's frustrated. But again, he expresses faith. That's what I want to highlight. He's clinging to faith. Look at chapter 19, verse 25, if you have that in your Bibles. Here we go. 1925 or mark it. Job says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. By the way, some believe that this is a reference, even as early as Job, to the understanding that God would someday come and reign on the earth with people. Uh, I think it's perhaps an early reference to the new heaven and the new earth described in Revelation 21, where Jesus uh, says and the scriptures say that I will put an end to all suffering, all pain, and he, and he brings heaven to earth and establishes a new heaven and a new earth and we're resurrected in spiritual bodies. That's a your eternity, by the way. And maybe Job had a glimpse of that. I'm not sure if you can push it that far, but he clearly says, I know my Redeemer lives and in the last he will take his stand on the earth even after my skin is flayed. Whew, kind of graphic. Yet, without my flesh, I shall see God whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes shall see and not another. And my heart faints within me. So Job is expressing his faith. My Redeemer lives. He says, even if my flesh just falls off, the reality is I know that someday I'm going to look God in the face and I will then experience his redemption, his life, And then he can explain this to me. Interesting little tidbit here, by the way, if you if you study the Hebrew of this, the phrase yet without my flesh, I shall see God could be translated two ways. The New International Version, I believe, is on the screen and that's a good translation. Yet even without my flesh, I shall still see God because he knows I'm going to live after I die. Or it could be translated um, even from um, it could be translated yet from my flesh, I shall see God. The uh, Hebrew preposition there could be translated from my flesh instead of without my flesh. It could go either way. If it's from my flesh, then Job is actually saying, you know something? Someday, even if I die and this flesh is destroyed, I will be resurrected to a spiritual resurrected body that will be a fleshly spiritual body. Like Jesus' body after the resurrection was spiritual, but yet could be touched. Okay, you with me? Because Scripture clearly teaches that that is your eternal state. It's not being some ghost in the clouds. It's a resurrected body that you will have someday. And so Job may be saying, 
fact, I probably lean to the second view. Job may very well be saying, you know something, even if I die now, someday I will be resurrected. I will, and, and in my flesh, I will look God in the eye and I will then see my Redeemer. The bottom line is this, though. Job believed he would see his God with his own eyes on the earth someday and be vindicated. So round three, what do his friends do? They come at him a third time. Chapters 22 to 37, they basically say, look, Job, God is majestic. You are wicked. Face it, man. Suffering has a purpose. Learn from it. Chapter 22.4 is the best example. Chapter 22.4, Eliphaz says this, Is it because of your reverence that God reproves you that he enters into judgment against you? In other words, hey, Job, do you really think it's because you're such a great guy, you're such a godly guy that you're getting hammered? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? In other words, he says, hey, man, it's got to be your problem. Job responds, I'm innocent. Chapter 23, I wish I could speak to God. I'm frustrated. I have obeyed, but God does whatever he desires. That's chapter 23, verse 12. But then I want to highlight his response again. He's still clinging to faith. He says, I will hold fast until I die. Look at chapter 27 in verse 3. Pick it up in verse 3. He says, for as long as life is in me, And the breath of God is in my nostrils. My lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I will hold fast my righteousness. I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. Round three. Job is still hanging tough. But he's hurting. He's asking hard questions. He is frustrated with his friends and with God, but he is holding to his faith. That's the, that's the big idea. So Job now listens as God speaks. And God takes over the conversation. Chapters 38 to 41, there's three big ideas. God says to Job, hey, Job, are you my counselor? Chapter 38, verse 4 on the screen. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Um, kind of curious. Where were you? And, and God gets a little sarcastic and a little, you know, plays with him. Hey, Job, where were you when I kind of laid out the oceans? Hey, God, where were you when I, like, created these things? Uh, yeah, what were you doing that day, Job? You know, who do you think you are? Are you my counselor? I am the Almighty. Who are you is the second big idea. Look at chapter 38, verse 12. He says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? In fact, I love this section. Look at chapter 38. Turn to chapter 38. Let me give you a few more verses. Let's pick it up in verse uh, 16. Verse 16. Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Now, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta see a little bit of the humor in this. It's not a laughing matter. You got a hurting, hurting guy. But God says, you know, are you my counselor, Job? 
um, are you the Almighty or am I? And finally, Job, will you contend with me, the Almighty? Chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer. So you here to you are you here to set me straight? And you know, before we kind of think, yeah, Job wouldn't do that. You know, how many times in our lives are we in reality we just kind of say to God, you know, God, let me tell you what you need to do. Let me set you straight. God, do you not see what's going on? God, why are you this? God, why don't you do this? You know, and that's kind of what's going on. And God finally comes to Job, and God never explains what he's doing. Now, see, if I'm God, I would have played it different. But that's why I'm not God. If I was God, I would have come to Job at some point and said, you know, Job, let me let you see what's happening in the heavens. Let me let me give you a glimpse of the fact that you have been chosen of all men of all time because I love you to use you and your faith to teach faith in the midst of pain. Not just to your generation, but for generations to come for thousands of years, millions of my followers will be helped in their pain because of your story. You will be the superhero of how to respond in pain. And you, and you will, you will help countless people with their grief. And in fact, Job, let me tell you, um, just be patient. I'm going to give it all back to you. Uh, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you your blessings back. But for now, this is what's going on, Job. Satan and I are playing this contest and you are in it, whether you want to be or not. So relax. Now, I would have done that because I think that'd be nice to just know what's going on. But God doesn't do it. And you know why he doesn't do it? Because I think Job is also the example of how to trust God when the answers don't come. And if God gives Job his answers, why am I doing this? What am I up to? Then every one of us are going to expect that from God. And sometimes we need to learn to trust God when the answers don't come. That's what Job does. What can I say? Verse 3, chapter 40. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, I will shut up. And Job shuts up. And all of a sudden, then... He begins to understand God in the midst of this. And in chapter 42, we don't have time to unpack the verses in detail, but here is what you see. Look at chapter 42. If you have nothing else to do this week, you read chapter 42. Because Job answers the Lord and he very quickly says, all right, now I get it. I don't get why my life is so bad, but I get you. And God is revealed in the midst of Job's pain. And here's what Job learns. Verse 2, I know you can do all things. God, you are all powerful and I am not. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Verse 2, in other words, God, you are sovereign and I am not. You have a purpose, but I may not understand it. Who is this, verse 3, that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that I did not understand. He's talking to God. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In other words, God, 
you are all wise, so maybe I should listen. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, God, and you instruct me. I have heard of you from the, from the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. That God is wise, God is also holy, therefore I repent. There's the big ideas. Now, this is all that Job learns. Job says, okay, God, I'll shut up. Because I realize, but I believe, God, you are all powerful. I'm not. You are sovereign. I'm not. You have purpose, but I don't get it. You are all wise, so I should listen and quit talking. And you are holy, therefore I should keep looking at my own life and just dealing with my own sin. This is Job before God. Remember Job's friends? At this point, look at verse 7. And it came about that the Lord... After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, okay, um, that my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. In other words, the big difference in Job and his friends is they spoke untrue things about God. They thought they had God figured out. Okay, they spoke untrue things about God and about Job, and Job spoke the truth about God. And and God is getting ready to kind of hammer these guys. And then there's a wonderful story here where God kind of says, now, therefore, uh, in verse eight, take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him. Um, so that I may not do, uh, uh, for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right. You know what he's basically saying is this. <laughs> you better take an offering to Job, because you have wronged him by speaking wrong of me. And you told him that what I really do is I kick people in the backside who do things wrong. So I think I'm going to do to you just what you told him I do. You told him that I'm a God who punishes those who speak or do wrong, and you just spoke or did wrong about me. So I'm getting ready to hammer you. Uh, Why don't you go take an offering to Job, and maybe Job will pray for you, and I will honor Job's prayer and let you off the hook. So Job goes and he actually prays for his three lousy friends. And God lets them off. Great story. And then God restores Job's fortunes. And we see it. Uh, You just got to listen to this. And the Lord restored, verse 10, chapter 42, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Isn't it interesting? God didn't restore his fortune until he gave grace toward his friends. An interesting lesson there. Are you willing to give grace to bad friends who hurt you? Or do you hold grudges? Interesting side note. So, The Lord increased all that Job had 
twofold. He doubled it. Then all of his brothers and his sisters and all who had known him before this came to Job and they ate with him in his house and they consoled him and they comforted him. See, even after Job begins to get re-blessed by God, he's still hurting. He still needs comfort. He still needs people around him. See, the fact that Job's friends came, we, we often make them the bad guys, but let me say one thing in their defense, at least they showed up. Do you show up for hurting people? See, that's why all of us need to be in life groups or smaller groups somewhere in our church so that when you're hurting, God can deliver his comfort because God delivers comfort through people. Even people that make mistakes like Job's friends. But all of his other relatives began to come around him and comfort him and each one gave him a piece of money and each one gave him a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. God gave him his ten kids back. He gave him new children. And he, and, and, and he, and he named them. And, 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 and in all the land, no women were found as fair as Job's daughters. They weren't just great daughters. They were great-looking daughters, too, and good daughters. You know, and he was blessed. And after this, Job lived 140 years, which, by the way, helps date the book. Because in the age of the patriarchs and before that, that type of extra longevity existed on the planet when you study how long people lived. So again, Job is Job is coming with this kind of faith. And God blesses him. God restores all that he has. What do we learn from this thing? What do we take away from it? Let me give you a couple quick tips. Number one, when you can't see what God's doing, trust his heart. When you can't see the hand of God, trust the heart of God. See, Job never was told what God was doing, why he was doing it. But he trusted the nature of God. He trusted the heart of his God. He kept coming back to the fact that I know that God is almighty. He's all-powerful. He cares. I know that he is holy. By golly, I will not stop trusting him even if he takes my life. Job trusted the heart of God when he couldn't see the hand of God. It's a great principle. And, and know that sometimes you will never see the hand of God. You will not know what he's up to. So you've got to focus on the character of God, not the conduct or the apparent conduct of God in and around you. Secondly, it was this. I would say simple faith with no answers is better than simple answers with no faith. Let me kind of unpack this. To me, this captures a lot of what we see happening in Job. See, a lot of times um, what held him together was a simple faith focused on God, even when he had no answers. And that's better than, okay, for God's oh, okay, I'm going I'm to tell you what I'm up to. I'm going to tell you all the details, why I'm doing this in your life. And I, I hope, you know, I, I want to give you the answers, but if you have all the answers, but you don't have faith, you're worse off than the guy who has faith with no answers. So simple answer with no faith is better than simple simple faith with no answers is better than simple answers with no faith there is a lot more than that that we could learn from job most of these are principles we've already been teaching or we will teach in weeks to come so 
I don't want, I don't expect you to write all these down, but just capture the big ideas. See, be ready to suffer at times because bad things happen to good people. I'm going to click these off real fast, so just build them up there. Uh, draw close to God and worship through your pain. See, I love the fact that when Job lost everything, the first thing he did was he says he, 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 he shaved his head and he tore his robes and he worshiped God. When you don't feel like worshiping God, you worship through your pain. He drew close to God instead of going away from him. He cried out and he cried. Crying is healthy and crying out to God is healthy. God cares and he listens. Job vented. Job expressed frustration. Job didn't hold all that in. He talked about it. So Job did cry out. That's healthy. Job gathered with friends. He didn't isolate from people. See, friends are made for such times. Even if they give you bad advice at first, filter their advice through the Word of God. But at least be with your friends. Let them know that you're hurting when you're hurting. Job models that for us. Job is humbled. He repents of his own sin or he looks and examines his own life. That's a healthy thing to do because sometimes our pain is self-inflicted. Be teachable. Ask God to teach you. Stop talking. Listen more. And then ultimately the big idea of the book is trust, trust, trust. What God wants from us is to say, I will trust you even when I can't understand. Now, we have something Job didn't have, so I added that phrase, always remembering the cross. Because the reality is Job had to do everything he did, and that's why it's so important to put Job in history. Job did everything he did with no vision of a Jesus on the cross. He had no vision of the whole church. He had no vision of all the promises of, 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 uh, of, of New Testament or Old Testament Scripture. He had none of the messages of the prophets to rely upon. He had a simple faith, but a strong faith. But we have more than that. We have all the story of Job to study. So now we know what God was up to. And that sometimes God has a deeper purpose for our suffering than we could ever understand. We we have Job to look to and learn from. And we have the cross to look to. And to learn from that we have a heavenly father that loved you so much. He took his son and he let him be butchered on a cross for you. And then he says, so when you hurt, trust me. Today, I want you to take some time and and as we have the band come to lead us in a song, use it as a time of reflection. Use it as a time to ask this question. And the question that we want you to ask is this. You know, God, what is it? What is it that I've been saying to you unless you tell me what you're up to? I can't love you. I can't follow you. I can't trust you. So what is it that you're up to? Where's uh, Paige? Someone slip out and find Paige for me, okay? Someone in the back, anybody? I volunteer. Here we go. There we go. Yeah, look for Paige. Tell her we're ready to go. You know, you know me, bass is my favorite instrument, Scott. Thanks. Can you sing, though? Okay. Actually, this gives me a little more time. 
So let me, um, let me go ahead and, uh, and pray with you about this. Father God, um, we thank you that there are things in our lives that we don't understand. So as we stop and just sit in silence now, I, I want to ask each of you to uh, try to imagine the things in your life, maybe it's one or two things that you are asking God to fix. But you're demanding that He fix it. You're demanding that He tell you what He's up to. And Father, we pray that we would be willing to uh, turn those things over to You, release them to You, and say, I will follow You even if it never gets better. That's worship.